Once again, we are here, So Very Wrong About Games. It is a podcast about board games and playing board games and enjoying and loving board games. I'm here with my great friend, Mark. How are you today, Mark? I'm very well, although I'm not familiar with this enjoyment you speak of. Well, you wouldn't. You crush people and you watch them cry. I can see why you don't get joy from Purely on a clinical level, though. That being said, once again, I'm moving. And that means games go into storage again. And I want to get less games. So here's hoping that I can get some games at the door to you guys. We'll see if that happens. Lots to get ready. But this time, I've made sure this is going to be more permanent. There'll That's be, what everyone always says. Be, this is the last time I move. Never no again. No more moving after this. And we'll have a better studio, hopefully, and all the rest of it. It's going to be fantastic. So, like I was saying, this is a podcast about board games. We're going to talk about games, the game we reviewed last year. Then we're going to talk about some games we played this week. News, not that there's a lot of it, and why it really doesn't matter. Our feature game, which is Kalamala. And our topic of the week, which is gaming ambience. What kind of atmosphere do you want while you're playing games? All right, Mark, game of from last year. Our, you, you're making me introduce this. Our Eurus. Our Eurus our our last is, year was Champions of Midgard. Have you played Champions of Midgard since we I reviewed it? I think I've played it twice since we reviewed it. Yes. And a good time both times. As I, I think as so. Our, yeah, yes. I, I have no problems with Champions of Midgard. It's a, one of these games where the rules are still fairly tight. There's not any of those ambigu- ambiguities. Such as how to pronounce words, where there's some ambiguity ambiguity. there. Ambiguities. And it's solid. It's fun. It's rolling dice. It's fighting monsters. It's worker placement. It's blocking people out. It's seeing what they're going for. It's it's usually a good time all around. I will say the following. I play it as often as I choose to, as often as I desire to. It holds up just as well as I, I think it's as good now as it was when we reviewed it last year. I think it's as well situated in the genre now as it was last year. I'll say this. I, I would like to issue, well, repeat rather, a very mild kind of, not even retraction, but recasting of what I said. After having re-listened to the review the week after we recorded it, I felt that the tone was rather more strident than it needed to be. I don't think that I had said anything false about Champions of Midgard, but occasionally a certain degree of passion crept into my voice, which, number one, uh, the game didn't deserve because it's too tepid, and number two, the game didn't deserve because I didn't hate it that much. And so I, I, I issued a, a mild comment on Twitter saying that, you know, upon uh, upon reflection, so, sometimes my, my tone was a little too harsh, and that on reflection, it's it's basically fine, I guess. And credit where credit is due, Gray Fox Games, the publishers of Champions of Midgard, who are uh, apparently fans of the show, or at least listen to the show, maybe they hate listen to it, they tweeted back saying, finally we have the pull quote we need to take it to the next level, and made a marvelous image of my quote next to Champions of Midgard as though it were an advert. And uh, I, I gotta say, that's class. <laughs> it was probably my favorite interaction on social media yeah. last year. Champions of Midgard, it's fine. Yeah. So that's <laughs> so. I'll say this: the best thing about Champions of Midgard is the publisher, Gray Fox Games. Great people, wonderful sense of humor. Yeah, two fantastic expansions that are out for it, which makes the game just that much better. I wouldn't play without the two expansions. So, Mark, what did you play this week? Last week, got to play Defeason Seven with you. You talked about it last week, and we got to pull it out again. And it's either the Nasty Seven or the Sinister Seven. There's a number of different ways to translate it. Uh, I bring it up because there are two things that I neglected to add to your most excellent characterization of the game, which is very, very fun and silly. 
The Epson 7 number one uh, was designed by Jacques Zimet, which I keep forgetting because uh, Jacques Zimet is the king of quick and stupid. He's done Cockroach Poker. He's done Ghost Blitz, two excellent games in that category. Uh, and he's just very, very good at coming up with games that are the right length, the right level of complexity, the right level of engagement uh, for some good, quick, stupid fun for gamers of any stripe, people who don't play any games versus uh, people who play lots and lots of games. And Defeason 7 definitely falls into that. And But number two, you have to be a little bit more careful with Defeason 7 because unlike my experiences with Ghost Blitz or lots of other games like that, Defeason 7 will allow for perfect play. It is possible over the course of even a single session, and we saw this last time we played, for people, even sometimes on the first playing, to evolve to perfect play. And a game like Defeason 7 relies on mistakes, and mistakes are what make the game fun. When everyone's playing perfectly, it's still enjoyable, but it's not the same experience and you need to bring it to its conclusion. Fortunately, you did not follow the setup instructions, and you just kind of winged it with the number of cards that you set out, and the game ended just as we'd all mastered it, which was perfect timing. Absolutely perfect timing. So you do have to be a little bit careful about things like that with games of this ilk. I do find that, you know, if it's too, if it's impossible to internalize the rules that you have to play along with, it starts to become too chaotic and random. And if you get to perfect play, then it's just not a satisfying experience anymore. Uh, but Defeason 7 is still uh, an excellent good time. And I really do think that there are at least four or five different games by Jacques Zemey that are absolutely wonderful for that kind of context. So that was Defeason 7. Yeah, it's definitely a, deciv- a divisive game. They're either the people love it or they hate it. And uh, some people hated it that night, but mostly people loved it. I yeah, they were wrong. I went back and asked right? one of the players, and she said, oh, she would never play it again. But but like you said, it's, I think it would make an even better drinking game on top of that. Sure. But more on all this later. More on more on, <laughs> more on exactly like we said, tweak, sure. tweaking the game, knowing your audience, knowing the time. Anyway, we'll talk about more of that later. I got to play Factory Funner. I've already talked about it before, so I'm not going to go too much into it. It's uh, brought it out with people who never played games before. They mostly just play, you know, apps on their phone. So this worked, you know, perfectly with them. As soon as they understood how the mechanisms work, uh, we got at least four or five plays in and they loved it. It was fantastic. It's a game where you're uh, feeding colored tubes into machines, which, you know, spit out different colors that you can feed into other machines. And it's a puzzle game that's super fun. That was a good call, actually. I don't know that I would have had the courage to, or at least the the confidence to suggest something like Factory Funner to people who don't play a lot of board games, but you're absolutely right. If people play games on their phone, which almost everyone does, we're all gamers now, the geeks have won, the culture wars are over, we've triumphed. But yeah, it's basically an app game on a, in a board game context, and the actual mechanisms of the board game will make perfect sense to anybody that's familiar with the basic video game structure of it. So yeah, I think that was a very good call. I got to play a game called Sword Crafters. Sword Crafters is nominally a kind of a combination of a drafting and an I split you choose kind of game, uh, but sufficiently diluted where nothing you do matters at all. And it's built around a sort of physical gimmick where notionally you're actually building swords. You have these tiles that sort of slot in and you end up with something that's kind of fun to play around with, like a five-year-old, but doesn't really look like a sword, doesn't really look like much of anything. So it's got an impressive kind of physicality about it. I think it probably would have been better and certainly more evocative if you were building skyscrapers or something like that, because the tiles basically just make a, a, a skyscraper type arrangement, and then they call it a sword and call it a day. And you're basically just trying to collect sets or collect things in a row, 
And, uh, I mean, honestly, I, I, we played at the maximum player count. With fewer players, there would probably be much more control. But honestly, with five players, when you're going to be doing a split and then sometime later you're going to be drafting from a small number of piles, it's basically, well, you can have these two tiles or these two tiles, and they're mostly the same either way. Okay, I guess I'll take these two and slot it in, and at the end something happens. Uh, I was extremely unimpressed. Uh, it was very, it, it, you know, it was functional, and it was short enough. I don't think I'd go back again, certainly not at a high player count, and I certainly wouldn't seek it out for two or three, but there at least there might be some illusion of control, and things might be vaguely consequential. Again, I, I would have been much happier if the visual gimmick had had some degree of appeal, but I don't think it executed very well on that premise either. And so that was my experience with Swordcrafters. All right, I got an oldie but a goodie out. It's called Formula Day or Formula D. It's a fantastic racing game. The newest edition is fantastic because you can either do street racing or or Formula One racing. And the street racing has all sorts of special rules with jumps or someone shooting at you as you drive by or depending on what track you play, all sorts of fun stuff. So it was another introductory game because a bunch of new people. So I've been, all of my games are going to be introductory games, but it's a press your luck game. It's, it's, you know, knowing how many times you have to stop in a corner and trying to go through it as fast as you can and trying to time it just so you land in the corner just right and watching people explode and burn. And I'm going to go back to this in our topic. Namely watching people burn. No, mostly watching, you know, because Formula Day, they want you to do multiple laps and pit stops and all this. And it'll just feed into just exactly what we said with Diffusion 7, knowing your audience, knowing that you're just going to do one lap and that they're going to get most out of that game by just doing the one lap. Yeah, we, we refer back to Formula D on the regular because it, to me, is the paradigmatic example of a racing game that's too long. And I don't know what it is with racing games always being too long. It's it's a very strange kind of thing about the genre. But yeah, for one lap, it's it's good for some quick fun. But then, of course, you're leaving out a lot of other stuff. You know, it, it, it kind of takes the teeth out of some of the press your luck decisions about how much wear you want to put on your car. That said, rolling a die and moving your little car is, is, is a perfectly acceptable way to pass the time. What track did you use? Chicago. I think it's the second one. Whatever Chicago is. <laughs> Chicago is a city in Illinois. That's right. That's what Chicago is. That's what I heard. Okay. It's a rumor, I'm sure, but I think that's right. That was Formula Day. After we played Defeason 7, for more uh, quick, silly fun, played a game called Billionaire Banshee, which is a game that I hadn't played in a while. Billionaire Banshee is probably my favorite of the something funny happens and then everyone votes kind of games. In Billionaire Banshee, it's all about evaluating whether or not you would consent to have a long-term relationship with a certain individual who has a perk, which is some strange feature about themselves, and a quirk, which is some strange defect about themselves, nominally a defect. And of course, sometimes you find out that what the game thinks is a defect is not what your friends think is a defect, or what the game thinks is an asset is not what your friends think is an asset. And so in that sense, it can be uh, pretty illuminating in, in, in pretty satisfying ways, but it is absolutely not for groups that are not keen to do that. You might as Walker's been pointing out, you got to read the room, and if it's the case that somebody's uncomfortable, that you need to put a stop to things. I've been pretty fortunate. It, it's worked in all the times I've pulled it out. There are some quote-unquote naughty cards. You can leave those out, too. They, they're differentiated by a different back. But just to give you an example of some of the kinds of people that Billionaire Banshee spits out for where, where you date, I'll, I'll give you the one that was, for me, one of the hardest decisions I made. Their perk was that anything they drew would come to life or could come to life. And the card very helpfully explained that this was completely under their control. The thing that was brought to life was under their control as well and would last for a few minutes and that they would be happy to do this for you. And I thought, this is amazing. I was immediately thinking about the possibilities of this and having someone like that as your, as your partner sounds outstanding. And then I'm like, I'm all in. 
And then the quirk, the, the, the quirk came out, and the quirk is that they were a Holocaust denier. And then it's like, hard pass. Hard pass. <laughs> so that's, that's an example of the kind of things that Billionaire Banshee can spit out, and that will probably give you uh, a sense of whether or not it is a game you want to play. And <laughs> definitely will give you a sense of the type of game Oh, it gives you a sense of something, all right. Yep. Anyhow, I, I find it good for some uh, good good for some fun. There are several different game modes that are worth trying, but I've always done the one where someone pulls up uh, a pair of cards and everyone else around the table votes on whether or not they think that person would consent to go out with them. Uh, and then you get points or not. But, I mean, it's one of those games where the points really don't matter all that much. No. You keep playing until you think you're done. Yes, and for sure. I love those games. It's a great, you know, when you have too many players or it's, you know, a party night or, you know, drinking is going to be involved. It's one of those games that always hits and it's always hilarious. And for what it's worth, the reason why I prefer Billionaire Banshee to something like Apples to Apples or other things like that is Apples to Apples is more about strange associations, whereas Billionaire Banshee, at least you can you can find out about someone's actual preferences. It's like, well, you know, this is this is why I think this person is unsuitable or why I think the person is, is, is appropriate. And for what it's worth, I kind of enjoy talking about stuff like that in the abstract, even with people I don't really know very well. So that was Millionaire Banshee, not for everybody, but certainly one of my flavors of stupid fun. All right, my last game is yet another gateway game, Quadropolis. So why is this such a great gateway game? Because you can just start playing. And there is, there is a, a feeling that you get when you're building a little city. You know, you're putting little houses together, you're powering them up, you're putting people in them, you're putting skyscrapers down. And on your first game, it doesn't really matter, you know, what the scoring is. You're just having fun making your little town. And then when the gate, when that first game is over and you explain how the scoring works, and then you can see the light go on in their head and the second game starts and then they're making like key decisions and, and thinking about where, where buildings are going. And it's a great feeling once you see people like getting right into the game. And that's why I love Quadropolis. And that's why it's way better than Between Two Cities. <laughs> <laughs> Got to play Vengeance by uh, Gordon Calleja. Uh, Vengeance is, I think, very well characterized by you as an excellent single-player game because there's not a whole like, a heck of a lot of player interaction. And indeed, I was feeling like some solo gaming, and so I pulled out Vengeance. And one of the great things about Vengeance is the theme and the execution of the theme. It is a perfect rendition of a revenge movie where terrible, terrible caricatures of gang members do awful things to you at the start. You recover, you train in literally a montage, and then you murder everybody. So much murder, so much murder. And the solo version in Vengeance is really good because it really fleshes out this narrative. It talks about what gangs have wronged you specifically and the motivations and additional rules that apply to your specific character. This time I played as uh, an elderly florist whose uh, son was kidnapped by a gang, but it turns out that she's a retired member of the Peshmerga, so they wronged the wrong person, and so she decapitates all of them, basically. Mistakes were made. Mistakes were made. Mistakes were absolutely made. And so I had a great time with Vengeance. I really do like the different characterization of, of different uh, solo campaigns. I wish that much flavor had worked its way into the multiplayer game. The multiplayer game is just a little bit too much multiplayer solitaire, and it doesn't have that extra uh, you know scenario basis that the solo game has. But it was a good time, and uh, I do enjoy pulling out Vengeance every once in a while, especially if you have any enthusiasm for revenge movies. Yeah, I remember the, the time we had with it was great. I, I do want to try it one more time. Oh, good. I got to play Race for the Galaxy, The Brink of War. Now, when one says they're going to play Race for the Galaxy, they now have three different arcs to choose from. And within the main or first arc, there are three different expansions and several varieties to play. But my absolute preferred way to play Race for the Galaxy and my absolute preferred way to play Tableau Builders, period, 
is with the first three expansions, namely Up to the Brink of War, without takeovers, with prestige, with goals. Anyway, I realize I've alienated a lot of race diehards. Goals are controversial. Prestige is very controversial. But my primary gaming partner for a long time was always willing to play a race at the drop of a hat. And so I've played uh, well over 150 games of Race for the Galaxy, and most of those are two-player. So we played Race for the Galaxy again with the Brink of War, and I really do think that that is the best way to do tableau building, bar none. We, it took us 30 minutes, all told, start to finish, including setup and teardown. And there were significant trade-offs. I still remember the, the agonizing decisions that I had to make in terms of discarding cards to pay for other stuff. Now, it's not the best way to introduce someone to the game. I haven't actually taught anyone Race for the Galaxy in a while. I tried with Walker and Huey and Dewey uh, a couple months ago, and I made some tentative steps. It didn't quite stick, uh, but then again, in order to make Race stick, you have to pay, you play several times back-to-back so that the iconography stays in your head. But it was, it was a great time revisiting a fabulous game. The whole race family is getting another major expansion soon with an expansion for Roll for the Galaxy, which is a very, very different game in a lot of ways. So we'll be seeing at least what Tom Lehman has to do with the same broad ideas. But I always have time for Race for the Galaxy, and I got to play it in the preferred version. So it made me very, very happy. One of my top ten games. Nice. Now on to the news and why it doesn't matter. Walker, what has caught your eye in the news? Carnival Zombie 2nd Edition. Finally. 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 Wow. It is has 17 days left, or six, as we're... Oh, it's actually on Kickstarter. It's on Kickstarter. Oh, wow. It's been going. It only has 16 days left. It looks very much like the first one, but except, like we said, with some some miniatures, some streamlining, I hope. A comprehensible rulebook, maybe? We can hope. It looks a comprehensible rulebook. Maybe some more, you know, stretch goals. We'll see how much it gets. It's already been funded, so it's already successful. So we'll see how it goes. I did not pledge yet. That's not to say I'm not going to, but I I think I've played. It doesn't look like they've changed very much. So maybe, you know, I already have, the you know, access to the first one. So maybe that's good enough. I'm not sure. It has this great mechanism that when you kill zombies, you drop them on this cardboard card. So this cardboard card slowly builds up with all these cubes because all the zombies are represented by cubes. So you start killing zombies, you have to drop them at least, you know, an inch or so above the card. And any cubes that fall off this card, unfortunately, you have to put back on the board. So it's got this, you know, built-in little dexterity game that is fantastic. So the miniatures are just for the characters, not for the zombies. Uh, for the bosses, right? Because you, oh, okay. you never drop the bosses on the cards. So okay. they, they have some figures for the bosses and figures for your player character. Because that was going to be my question, if they'd gotten rid of the dexterity element for Carnival Zombies 2nd Edition, but yeah, good for them. It, yeah, no, definitely not. still there, and I'm going to look into it more, and we'll see how it looks. On the topic of dropping things, uh, there's a game on Kickstarter right now called Crumbs, which is about various uh, breeds of urban vermin uh, fighting over the bread that is dispensed by a local grandma. Now, it is very much in the same kind of aesthetic that I think Root is in, which is to say sort of lighthearted creatures engage in vicious animal battles for supremacy. I would encourage anyone who is weak to that aesthetic or was at all amused by the Root Kickstarter video that was clearly a parody of the Hate Kickstarter video to go to the Kickstarter page for Crumbs and at least watch the trailer. I find the trailer hilarious. It's all about, you know, B-roll of cute chipmunks and such with menacing narrator talking about how uh, they're going to come and murder you. And the way the, uh, the the titular crumbs that you're fighting over get distributed is you just drop them onto the board and they bounce around and there's plastic fences to keep everything 
in the way. I don't think it's actually a dexterity element because I don't think you can really control where wooden cubes disperse when you're just dumping them onto the board, but it's at least visually impressive. Anyhow, it's got custom little wooden meeples for the little animals. It's 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 just got a really adorable theme coupled with over-the-top militaristic descriptions of urban animals. So I am looking forward to seeing what Crumbs has to offer, and it is definitely... Uh, I'm definitely weak to the sense of humor, so there's that, if nothing else. So today was the last last day to vote for the board game board game geek awards. So hopefully everyone voted for their best game and their best co-op game, their best card game, and their best recorded board game talky thing. Archi- architects of the West Kingdom all the way down. Yeah, I, I gave ones everywhere. Yep, ones, I, ones, ones across the board. I hope it wins everything. Yep. I really hope it's good. I, I'm really pulling for best card game and best podcast for Architects of the West Kingdom, honestly. Yes. I want to win best dexterity game because as I threw it across the room, the way it arced into the garbage can was pretty fabulous. Poetry in motion. Last bit of news is Bus is getting a reprint. Bus was an early splatter game. And it was designed by, you know, the two designers who've done pretty much everything for Splatter. And to the best of my understanding, this is the first time that a Splatter game is now going to be reprinted by a publisher that is not Splatter. It's going to be uh, republished by Capstone Games. Word on the street is that they're not going to be changing any of the rules. Bus was an early worker placement-ish game about public transit uh, with time travel, because naturally. And it's of course. very much a brain burner type game. I don't really enjoy it, but I do have a great deal of respect for what Splatter does. And this is possibly a way forward for more Splatter games to enter more uh, broader distribution. You know, they have lots of games that people want reprinted on the regular. I don't know that they would be happy handing off something like Antiquity or Roads and Boats, certainly not Food Chain Magnate to somebody like Capstone or anybody else. But if they're willing to hand over bus, maybe they're going to be doing more partnerships with others in the future. And that's the primarily the interesting part that I, that, I, that I find relevant. And, you know, look, people seem to be enthusiastic about bus, so more power to them. So that was the news and why it doesn't matter. In my case, it really doesn't matter. Well, nothing you say matters, so. It's so true. And on to our feature game this week, which is Kalamala. Mark, where does Kalamala feel it fall into our timeline? So, Calamella was designed by Fabio Lopiano, and uh, I there, there wasn't a whole lot of information about Mr. Lopiano's publishing history on BoardGameGeek, but that didn't deter me. I did some research. And uh, apparently, he's, he's had an interesting career. He's done a lot of modeling work, evidently, uh, primarily on the cover of lots of romance novels uh, Fabio Lopiano did. And apparently, he was the spokesperson for I Can't Believe It's Not Butter. And, uh, oh, wait, no, sorry. Uh, I'm being handed a memo by our editorial department. That was apparently another Fabio. And, uh, oh, wait, no, I'm being handed another memo by our editorial department. Apparently, no one has ever found me funny at all. So, Fabio Lopiano's first published work is Kalamala. He has not published anything else, and that is the publication history of Kalamala and its designer. Walker, why don't you give us an unhelpful cool. summary of what one does Just in Kalamala? Just a second, Kalamala. i got to take that in. Like, there was so much information there that I need to, time to process that. So... Very much like Marco Polo, in Calamella, you need to really analyze the board because I'm going to just explain what you have to do because this is what makes will make more sense. You're going to be putting out these nine tiles in a square and you're going to be putting your tokens in between these actions at the axis and you're going to do both actions on either side of your token. And these counters are put out randomly every game. So knowing which ones will pair up is very essential. Same thing with 
all the victory point conditions. There's about, you know, 15 or more different victory point milestones. And every time something happens in the game, you're going to score them. You go along this track and these 15 things are going to score. And you sort of have to know the order in which they're scoring. So these are all things you have to analyze at the beginning of the game so you can, you know, work towards a certain strategy. Very much like Marco Polo and other games we've talked about like that. So why don't we start off with a theme? So the theme in Kalamala is your Italian merchant's going to... I'm sorry, sorry. I Sorry, my apology. I fell asleep in the middle of a sentence. But don't worry, here's the hook. You're saying something about donuts. Here's the hook. You, as Italian merchants, uh, you you generate resources to contribute to churches that are in construction. And then when you... Sorry. That was... Oh. Sorry. Uh, Yeah, the theme is terrible. Um, It's been done a billion times before. I, I don't know what it is. Yes, merchants apparently built a lot of churches back in the day, and that's great. And apparently, uh, the Kalamala is named after the Arte de Kalamala, which was the, the guild of, of cloth merchants, and apparently they were a big deal in Venice for several hundred years. But for a compelling board game theme, does not make. And we've done it a whole bunch of times before, so so let's just set all that aside. Well, I'm that apparently, that's why all these grand churches were built, because, you know, you got your skin, sins forgiven if you donated a whole bunch of money. So therefore, you had to do a whole bunch of trading in order to get a whole bunch of money. So you get all of your sins forgiven so they can build these giant churches so we can have these fantastic architecture things to look at. I think that practice only really got going well, well after the period depicted in the game. Like, we're talking about St. Peter's, I think, when that really started gearing up. But anyway, setting all that aside, let's talk about the action selection mechanism, because I I think you're right to stress right at the bat that the randomization of the action spaces can become super, super, super consequential. And very often in Euro games, for what it's worth, when they're, you know, management type games or worker placement type games, you randomize some element of the setup, and then it's very easy to forget that this has any consequence over the game, because mostly it doesn't. But in Kalamala, it makes a tremendous deal of difference which tiles are neighboring each other in terms of the actions. Because if it's the case that the action to use a certain resource is directly adjacent to the re- to the resource in question, well, then there's an obvious efficiency there. And you can expect to see that to be hotly contested. And you can expect that that action is going to be much easier to perform than something else where perhaps the resource that powers it is way off in a different part of the grid. And so what does Mark mean by contesting it? It means that... At the beginning of the game, you're going to have a certain number of discs, usually around 12 to 15, depending on how many players. And you're going to be putting them out in between these actions, and they never come back to you. And once those discs are gone, that's going to trigger the end of the game. And you're going to stack these discs, you know, in a a pile as they go up. As soon as you put a disc on, you get to do both actions on either side. When the next player puts a disc on the same area... They get to do both actions, and then you, the, the initial person that put their disc there, also gets to do those two actions. So you can see why getting your discs out early on these very important places is very important, because when, other, when it's someone else's turn, you're also going to get to do these actions. And then as soon as there are four discs on, in between these two actions, then that's going to score one of these 15 victory conditions, because only the last three people are actually going to be able to do the actions there and the initial person doesn't get to do it just their disc is going to go up to the the victory points score and then you're going to do that and then it's on to the next player and the scoring 
is very much in contrast with other games released in the past five years. And this has been, I've, I've said this over and over and over again, I'm sick and tired of Eurogames having incredibly Baroque overcomplicated scoring. The scoring in Kalamala is incredibly simple and incredibly confrontational. There are 15 different types of scoring, but it's all area majority. Who donated the most to this church? Who shipped the most cloth to this place? Who donated the most brick across all the churches? Who donated the most artwork across all the churches? All of those things. And on top of that, the tiebreaker, tiebreakers are also something that bedevil area majority games or your games in general. The tiebreaker is also really transparent and also hotly contested. Walker, as Walker said, when there's a fourth disc in a pile, it get, goes up and triggers scoring. And that disc sits there. And the number of discs that you've elevated that have been fourth in a stack, that helps determine tiebreaker. And so you need to worry about the tempo not only of doing these actions so as to score the various things in order. If a church is scoring first and London is scoring last, that is going to influence what kind of infrastructure you need when and what you want to gear up for when. And you also care on top of that tempo consideration, you care about when you trigger that those scoring elements on which stacks. Because if I put up Walker's disc in a scoring element, that helps him break all ties. Maybe I should take a less desired action on my part, pay that hit so that it's my disc that goes up instead. I absolutely love it. When there's area majority that's clean, that's simple, that's straightforward, and where the tiebreaker condition itself is hotly contested, it's all very, very clear direct player interaction, and I love it. Yeah, you've covered three of my points in my good column, which is like a three major things that go in this game. There's blocking, like you said, because you're going to be blocking these spaces, because if you start, you know, stacking up a lot of your colors, if someone goes there, you're going to be able to do that action multiple times. Also, once it becomes the fourth disc, like you said, it's going to go up and break ties. So it's not only blocking, it's also controlling the areas and area majority, all of these things working together. And like, like I said, you said the flow is real, very quick scoring things You do and very quick play. You do one action you or you play one action disc, you do the two actions, next player, and then if they're scoring, easily seen, easily scored, move on. And the third thing you tie is the, is the tiebreaker mechanism, which we've already talked about. It's just a fantastic little thing because not only the fourth disc, fourth disc that goes up, but there's also one of the churches that's also tied in. And it's just whoever has, if, if it's tied here, then you go to this and if it's tied there. And it's, it's one of these things that just is resolved very quickly and is very interesting that you can manipulate it. And it's not just random and it's fantastic. Kalamala is very much the kind of game that I would describe as a super filler. When played briskly, and it very often is, regardless of player count, it goes from three to five players. One game I saw with setup, rules, explanation, and teardown finish in less than an hour, and it was the first play of everyone at the table except for myself. Sometimes it can go a little bit longer if people start thinking and agonizing over their last placements because those last placements are super crucial, and suddenly all those things that you were taking for granted in the early turns suddenly seem now like things you can desperately take back. But it's kind of a 45 minutes to an hour of really, really, really good quality decision making. Uh, So I compare it to other kind of super fillers like Web of Power slash China slash Han slash Awari, all of which are the same game. You know, really, really tight, also a a tight, simple, straightforward area majority game. Games like Quantum, Warhammer Underworlds, Ethnos, all these games that are, you know, an hour or less, but really pack a, a, a surprising amount of satisfying decision making. So it doesn't feel like a filler, like one of those quick throwaway games, but by the same token, it doesn't last 90 minutes or even sometimes even 75 and very often that's what I want, especially in a game day where I might be playing, you know, three or four games in a row. Games like this are, are absolutely wonderful. Yeah, like you said, the amount of things that you get done in that one hour, like you're, you're, you're shipping things with, with your ships, you're 
you're putting cubes on, you're building churches, you're, you're, you're collecting resources, you're building cloth houses, you're building ships. The amount of things you get to do in that one hour just blew me away, and this is why I really love this game. Yeah, and, and some of the trade-offs you get are exactly the same trade-offs you get in longer games. In many Euro games, you have to decide when to stop building your infrastructure and when to start just focusing exclusively on points. Kalamala has that, despite the fact that there's precious little infrastructure to be built. You can only build three ships and three trading houses and two more uh, workshops. That's pretty much it. Those are pretty much the only things you can build, and they're all covered by the build action. Some of them you're probably going to have to build. But how many and when is an important question. So it's not like one of those games where you spend 45 minutes trying to ramp up your economy. You look around and say, oh, everyone's economy is so much better than mine, I I can't really catch up. It's very, very tight and vicious. And if you're able to take advantage of these tempo considerations better than other people, it's not about who has built the better economy. It's about all these tactical trade-offs. I really think because the rules are so tight, it's very easy to teach. Not only that, it's one of these games that you can pull out, you know, months after not playing it at all. And it's, you know instant setup, instant into playing because it's very straightforward and very informative. Every game is different because like we said, you're going to be randomizing all of the actions. So like ones are going to be different. They're going to be beside each other completely will change the game, you know, depending on which ones are adjacent to each other and the order in which the, the victory conditions are also will change the game up. Like I said, I've been so jaded by lots of other Euro games that have these random elements of setup that don't make me feel like the game is substantially different. Let me pick on one game that's even that, that's even really, really, really good. Uh, a game like Gaia Project. Very, very well designed. You have all these different random order of bonuses and random endgame bonuses. And honestly, I never really felt like they were they really changed the tenor of the game necessarily. And that's not a knock. It's just a, a, a facet of the game. Similarly, uh, and this is a knock against games like Gaia Project and Terra Mystica, at the end of an hour and a half to three hours, I look and I say, all that I've done is I've really built buildings. And that isn't really to my taste. Whereas in Kalamala, it's only 45 minutes to an, to an hour, and all you've really done is you've moved, moved cubes around. That's a less of a severe problem. Because, again, you, you've, you've gotten these kinds of trade-offs at a much faster tempo. And it's also the case, as you say, the order of the scoring really matters. The board looks radically different based on the order of the scoring events, whether it's all port cities at the beginning and churches last or vice versa or what have you. And the different actions will really, really, really change the tenor of the game, which just is an extra kind of force multiplier on top of this really unique action selection mechanism that I haven't seen anywhere else. It's not quite worker placement. It's not quite normal action selection. It's not drafting, but it's got kind of elements of drafting in that, you know, other people capitalize off your actions. It reminds me a little bit, and this is also another bit of a strange comparison, of Hansa Teutonica, in that Hansa Teutonica is a really tight, really clean design that looks like a root-building game, but it's not a root-building game. Kalamala looks like a worker placement game, but it's not really. It is kind of its own thing, but it comes together in this marvelously straightforward package that's very quick, very easy to teach, and got lots of direct confrontation. Things got heated. Putting a cube in a city has never felt quite so aggressive sometimes in those really, really tight scoring moments in Kalamala. All right, let's hit some bad points. Let's. Because we, we've talked about some already. Completely themeless oh, and, yeah. and painfully so. Uh, the art is not so great. Very basic Euro art. You know, it's not going to draw you to the game. It's not going to keep you entertained or, you know, whimsical in any way. Very much like Hansa Teutonica, it looks like a throwback. When Hansa Teutonica was published in 2008-2009, people said, what, we're still making games that look like this? And Kalamala's the same way. It's like, I didn't think that we did this anymore, but sure enough. And, and in unlike other Euro games, there seems to be only one, sort of one path to victory. You know, you're getting the, you know, there's not these 
different waving lines that you can totally, you know, take a different, unique perspective every time. But the game is so short, you know, it would be very hard to do that in such a short time. Yeah, you, you want to flood the board with cubes. And the way you get different cubes to different places is different, but you're absolutely right. There's one path to victory, win the area majorities, and and, and that's that. Uh, on top of that, I the endgame scoring, I think, can be a bit random. In that, during the game, it's all perfect information and it's all perfectly transparent. But at the start of the game, everyone gets these scoring cards and chooses to keep one. And it's secret. And at the end of the game, some areas will score again. Now... Sometimes this works out great. If London has already scored, and after it has scored, people keep pu- uh, someone keeps putting cubes into London, well, that may be a hint and a half that they're sitting on the London scoring card, and you want to keep that in the back of your mind. Similarly, the card that you keep gives you information, and the cards that you didn't keep also give you information because you know for a fact that they won't score again after the main game scoring is done. However, on a couple of different occasions, I have seen very, very crucial and close games seriously influenced by someone who just dropped the ball on their secret scoring condition. And if somebody doesn't pay any attention to their secret scoring conditions, basically it's just a flood of points more or less randomly to somebody at the table. And so that is an area where if the players aren't playing quote unquote properly, it might upset uh, what would otherwise be a tight and hotly t- contested game. And I don't like it when games have that level of fragility. So I would encourage everybody who plays Kalamala to emphasize, look, it is your responsibility to fight for this thing. Because if you don't, not only is your point going to suffer, the game is going to suffer. How, of course, fighting for it cleverly without tipping your hand is it can be a tricky thing. But anyway. My major bad point is also randomness here. There's these action cards that you can get during the game. You're going to get one at the beginning of the game to sort of offset uh, player order. And then during the game, when you place one of your tokens down to do the two actions, if there's one of the actions you can't possibly do, then you get one of these action cards. And it's usually one of the other actions that you can just play whenever you whenever you do an action or when, yes, whenever you do an action, you get to play one of these cards and and capitalize on whatever action is depicted there. And sometimes you can get really awesome cards that help you and sometimes you'll get cards that uh, will not help you at all. But where it gets very painful is if if you've sort of maneuvered yourself to score certain things and, you, and you've made sacrifices in order to make sure no one else can take it, suddenly when it's not your turn and you have no control over what's happening, people can start playing these cards and there's nothing you can do about, you know, do about it. And they've taken away these points and it can sort of take away from the game, I feel. I don't mind the randomness of the distribution of the cards so much because as you say, it's kind of like a consolation prize. You can't do this action at all, so you get some random thing. And I have found generally that the players, some players seem to think that this is a viable strategy of going after actions they can't complete. And I found that this usually ends in tears for them because a deliberate, albeit not ideal action, almost always beats some chance of some great action to, to, to be performed. What I don't like about what the action cards introduces is that it messes with the great tempo of the game. Because normally in Kalamala, you place a disc, you do your two actions, next person does two actions, next person does two actions, and then maybe maybe you do some scoring, you move on. But now, with action cards, you have to worry. First person does their two actions, are you playing any cards? Are you playing any cards? They look at their hand of cards. Okay, now on the next disc. And this repeats and repeats and repeats. And so it wrecks the flow. If people aren't disciplined about knowing that they want to play cards, they might be then cutting in a couple seconds. Like, well, no, no, wait, I want to do this card after all. And that's the part that I don't like. It It just, it, it it's kind of a, a, a random mechanism grafted onto a really, really smooth tempo and then kind of wrecks the flow of the game. My last bad point is I feel it has limited plays. Not so much for its entire lifespan, but in... Uh 
multiple plays, like or like something. This would be a game you pull out, you know, one or two times a month. Like playing it over and over again, I think it will suffer. That has not been my experience, but then again, I love area majority so much, and I really do love the way the different the the random setup really influences uh, the course of the game. I think it's just mostly to do with like I t- what I talked about before the fact that there's only one path to victory. I think it can get kind of samey after a while. I can respect that. The the other negative point I have is that the city hall fills up too fast. There's uh, basically one building that is not a church. It's it's city hall. And without going into too much detail, you can put artwork in there, and that helps determine tiebreaker. It is also possible that City Hall is an endgame scoring card, and it will also contribute to, during the game, scoring on, uh, across a couple of different metrics. There's only four spaces there, and once those four spaces are gone, they're gone. Compare that to the other churches, where, they have, where the smallest church has a total of 12 spaces available across various resources. And the cities that have um, uh, have a total of 12 spaces as well. And so sometimes they run out, absolutely, and they become hotly contested. But the city hall often fills up, you know, in the first couple rounds say, of the game. Second turn, yeah. Player it, one, player two. Maybe, sometimes. It can be done, yes. it, especially depending on how the action setup is. And it's not crucial that you can test city hall, but if for whatever reason you're in a position where you need to, you better get in there quick. And it can be a little bit unsatisfying for things to fill up that quickly. Yeah, I forgot to talk about when you talked about the, the victory cards you get at the beginning of the game. You Everyone gets dealt two and you pick one. And at first it, I thought it really didn't matter. But there is a little bit of strategy there, you know, whether or not you want later in the scoring round or at the early because if it's something, if it's, because it's going to match one of the other victory conditions. So if you find one that's early, and a lot of people can't get in there at the very beginning, and then it's already scored, people are going to sort of just leave it alone. Because what? It's already scored. Nobody cares. You can just put one or two cubes in there, you know, pretend that, you know, it's while well, I have nothing better to do. Or you've, <laughs> or you've put two cubes there at the beginning just to score it and, and just leave it alone. And I, I just like the fact that there's a strategy to picking the card as opposed to, well, you know, it really doesn't matter because, you know, I'm just going to work towards one of these anyway, so I'll just choose this one. Right. I find that the delicious tension is if you pick one that's early off, early on in the scoring order, after it has been scored, you cannot put cubes there without tipping your hand. And so you might be tempted to take one later, but if it's, it happens later, that space is going to be contested for more of the game. So it's probably going to be harder to win, although you don't have to worry about tipping your hand in that sense. So that kind of trade-off, I think, is is really cool. One of the many, many interesting tempo areas that, that really makes Kalamala shine. I think it's a shame, to sum up, I think it's a shame that Kalamala kind of sort of flew under the radar. Again, this was recommended to us by one of our listeners, and I'm really glad that they did, and that I tracked down a copy. It's got all the things in Euro games that I love, almost. It's got area majority scoring without without obtuse tiebreaker rules, it's got lots of tempo trade-offs, and it's got a little bit of a unique action selection mechanism. And honestly, that's all I look for most of the time. The fact that it's so quick and clean on top of that is just gravy. I can do without the the theming considerations. I love the variability of setup, and I, I've been playing it back-to-back all week, and I'm still not even remotely tired of it. It's it's really a winner, I think, especially in this realm of quick, engaging games with still lots of tactical and strategic trade-offs. One thing I told Mark, which I'm going to uh, repeat here, I think if you play Settlers of Catan or you know groups that you have only play Settlers of Catan, this is a great game to bring them into Euro-style gaming because you have uh, resources, like strategic places to put your 
your discs for resources. You also have like building recipes, like this needs, you know, two brick and wood to build things. So, so it has a lot of elements of Catan, but then it'll bring in all of these other mechanisms of Euro games and sort of bring them into the fold of these better and fantastic games. And so that was Kalamala, published originally by Blackfire Entertainment and distributed in North America by Stronghold. And now on to the topic of the week, which is gaming ambiance. Ooh, ambiance. Oh, it's, it's how I say the word. All right, so what, what, what are some of the things that matter to you, Walker, in the sense of setting, setting the stage, setting the tone, setting the scene for, for right. some good gaming? Well, the first sentence I have right here is grouping the right people together. Like knowing personalities of certain people, knowing that the personalities of some people will conflict, and inviting the right people to play games together. Most of the times when gaming gaming is happening, it's understood that that is an inevitable byproduct of of, of people getting together. Uh, the the truly awkward, and this really is awkward from a from a social perspective, is is those times when it's clear that some number of people desperately want a game to happen, and the rest of the people aren't having it. I've actually over internalized. The you know back in the day when when very early on in the hobby when I tried to to force people to play games that weren't really having it I'm now kind of overcompensating the other direction. Yeah, of, I was, was going to say the same thing. Yeah. I'm, I'm completely over. Not I don't think it's even overcompensating. I think it's that's the that's the attitude you have to have. You have to let the other people force you to play. It's like <laughs> I, because they're because you know otherwise you're you know leading them. You know, with reins, and they're not going to have fun. So, you know, you have to wait for them to say, I want to play this game right now. You have to teach me this game. You promised that we're going (laughs) to play this game. Why aren't we playing this game? And that is when I actually, you know, bring the game out. Until that happens, then, you know, I said, no. You know, it's like, I have these games here. We can play them. You let me know when you want to. And and then I just leave it at that. So in terms of of setting the scene, there are a couple things that I don't often find discussed that to me are super important. And I'm actually genuinely curious about your thoughts on this. Uh, one of them is lighting, because for me, generally, this this is a weird personality quirk I have. To me, there's nothing sadder than uh, sitting in the dark, and I don't really like that. But in the context of a game, I, I'm appalled at the lighting conditions that a lot of people think are apropos. It's one of the main reasons why I don't like to game in bars. And it doesn't even really have much to do with being unable to read things, although that's often a problem. I think you need strong overhead light, but... The light can't be directly over the center of high-gloss game boards because then you can't read anything. And I'm, I'm amazed that people don't turn on every available light before playing a game. Is this, am I making any sense here? No, no. I, I see where you're coming from, for sure. You don't want to – I always play with lots of light as much as I can possibly get. But you also have to realize some people enjoy playing at a bar and you sort of have, have to, you know, accommodate, you know, with, you know take the hit. I can respect that. What I, but what I genuinely don't understand is when, you know, there's a dark room and all the other rooms are in complete darkness. I respect the fact that people want to save energy. That's fine. But if you're talking about a two-hour endeavor with company over, you can eat the five cents and, and turn on a couple light switches. But All right. My next sentence is the right people with the right number of people. Oh, boy, yeah. Because some people thrive in larger groups and some people wilt in large groups. So you have to, much like, you know, getting the right people together, you have to get the right people, you know, with the player count that you have. And there also needs to be enough room. This is something yes. I've often, and, and I'm, I'm going to do it on air, so, so you don't have anywhere to go. Walker, your room isn't big enough for your table. No. I'm I, sorry, I, I have to break it to you. I, 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 I have nothing to say to that, <laughs> I completely agree. 
but it, but it is what it is. I, I'm not gonna yeah. you know put the table any. There's nowhere else for the table to go. Yes, absolutely. You there needs to be enough room, and this is sometimes a number of people thing. This is also sometimes a table thing. This is sometimes a room thing. You need to be able to move around, and perhaps most importantly, extricate yourself, because it's not quite claustrophobia, but some people just when when they're pinned in. It can exacerbate some other unfortunate social things. If someone's being a little bit too loud, if they know that they can just get up and hit hit the door, I'm not suggesting that they're going to bolt, but it just lessens the the it lessens the sting of that. Uh, and say nothing of you know having to go get a drink of water or having to go to the washroom or what have you. Having to get three or four people to stand up just so you can get out of the room is is generally a bad scene. Well, I can tell you this: the new house will have lots of room. Well, Dewey, and the table the table will fit in there just fine. What, what baffles me is that Dewey was commenting that in the room where I have my gaming table, he was looking at the table and said, like, oh, you can get a table easily, you know, a couple feet longer or wider than the one you have. And I did not understand where he was coming from because... Why would you need such a thing? Why would you need such a thing? I mean, obviously, bigger, bigger surfaces can be better in some contexts, but... Given the room that it's in, there wouldn't be enough room then for chairs and people to walk around. You need both. I've always said in, in several times in retrospect that the table I got was way too big. And had I had I have when once my time machine is fixed, it's it's on the <laughs> list. It's fairly far down the list, you know, because sure. I have a little more important things, but it is on the list that I would have got it much smaller. And while we're on the topic of tables, another another pet peeve that I have actually is the table's gotta be clean. Yes. Nothing Nothing can distract people more than having to like pit, pick little bits of fluff or debris or crumbs off your table while you're playing a game. It's embarrassing as a host. It's gross as a guest. And it really sucks you out of the, the, the mood of the game. So, you know, wiping down a table, perhaps every other month maybe, yeah. <laughs> might be really salutary. A little, little quick vacuum. Never heard anything. My next, the right people with the right game. You know, knowing the personality of people, what games they're going to they're like and what games will offend them or what games they'll enjoy that is another key element and then the same sort of vein know know the timing and the cadence and the speed like when when you watch the faces of people and you can tell when you're talking too quickly or you're rushing them or they're not quite understanding the game or or whatever it is or or you're going too slow like they seem you know they're fiddling or getting fidgety then you know pick up the pace get the game moving control the game. And also just being conscious of time management overall. Because we've commented before, board game boxes will lie to you. 60 to 120 minutes almost always means 120 minutes. Or even longer. I mean, I'm actually thinking specifically of a game that claims it's 60 to 120 minutes and that's too many bones, which is mostly a grotesque lie. Yeah, I have that. There's another point I have further down the list is how long will the game take? You know, be truthful. Don't lie. Don't try to force the game in when you know it's going to not finish or, you know, someone doesn't have enough time. So let's on the on the topic of time management, though, in terms of scheduling things, this is this is one of the biggest things that has been on my mind recently, not necessarily in terms of solutions that I have, but I've just been curious about this issue of food while gaming. What are your thoughts on food while gaming, Walker? I have two things here. Clean snacks only. Okay, what are clean snacks? I'm not sure. I have yet to encounter these. I was hoping that you had something. Jelly beans are clean. Jujubes are clean. Uh, Okay, jujubes. Did you say jujubes? Jujubes. Jujubes. Yep, jujubes. Okay, I don't think I've ever heard that before. That's fascinating. 
Uh, yeah, no, you're probably right about those. Like, uh, um, not that we want to buzz market any particular brand of candy, but you know, the various Swedish brands of, of of candies are usually pretty clean. Jelly beans can often make your fingers sticky, but I don't know what it is where most gaming gatherings. I think it just has more to do with the diets of a lot of hardcore board gamers. It always seems to amount to the most dirty, the most greasy, the most and like eating an actual meal while playing a board game out. I know, it's terrible. But by the same token, it's awkward and it requires a force of will and uh, often a second table to be able to say, let's take a pause in this or to, to be able to space things between games. Obviously, spacing things between games if you're having a, a prolonged event, that would be fine. But if you're just playing one game, if it's longer or if the timing is awkward, if you're playing, say, between five and seven, which is a rough period for, for, for most dinner times... But I don't know what it, what what is with the heavy predominance of potato chips and pizza with respect to gaming events. I do not understand it. They are some of the worst foods imaginable in these contexts. Yes, grease. Yeah, there's one thing I did though, and uh, I felt like such a fancy boy. I felt like the most effete, high class snob loser in existence. But somebody pointed out to me that if you want to eat cheesies, plastic fork and uh, paper plate all the way. They work really well. It's so easy to spear them, and now everything's clean. You don't have that orange dust anywhere. I felt like an utter fool, and oh, everyone mocked me. But I was clean, and I had my cheesy snacks. Yeah, good job, hipster. Um, (laughs) So, moving on. Drinks. Drinks, in my opinion, should never be on the table. Always should be in a cup holder off to the side, because you're going to knock it over, and you're uh, going to get drinks. You're going to get games wet. I'm always amazed. It's going to happen. So I, I can hear, especially with our, our previous discussion of food, I can just imagine the adherence to the Church of Sleeves telling us that this is why sleeves exist oh, and that it will solve everything. The answer to that is no, because if you've got greasy fingers, everything else is still going to get greasy. And if you spill a drink, other things will get damaged as well. Plus, you know, it fills right into the sleeve. And now you've got little baggies of fluid. Well, that's why you need sleeve sleeves. And oh, you sleeve, sleeve your sleeves so you can sleeve while you sleeve. Gotcha. It sounds like my grandmother's house who got expensive couch covers, and they're so expensive that she got covers for her expensive couch covers. Yeah. Anyway, I understand sleeving as a lifestyle. I just don't understand. But when people bring up things like pizza or cheese snacks, and they say, oh, just sleeve your cards, everything will be fine. I do not understand where these people are coming from. I don't understand why they think greasy and ch- and cheese dust encrusted wooden components and game boards are acceptable things. Music while playing board games. Yes. We have someone that likes to, they'll say, oh, is it okay if I put on some music while they're hitting the play button? <laughs> and I would like to take a hammer and crush their phone into several bits. I, I, I hate, hate music while playing board games. That is interesting to know. I used to play music during board games all the time. Now, granted, I didn't do it from my phone with its built-in speaker, which is a strange way to, oh, quote-unquote, enjoy music. If it's like orchestra music or, you know, light ambience music in the background on a stereo that's, you know, in the, ba- you know, in the background and not too loud, that is perfectly fine. But if it's like on the table and like you said, that tinny phone, you know, modern, eh, no. So I, this is, this is very much a personal preference thing. I don't have a strong distinction between music to be put on in the background while you do other things and music to actively listen to. For me, music is always the same. There's a couple of very, very minor exceptions. Uh, Certain kinds of lyric-heavy hip-hop will distract me while I'm trying to read, for example. But past that, 
I don't see, you know, you know there, there, are lots, there are lots of things that I put on the background that other people have, have expressed wonderment that I consider that to be background music. And that's not because, you know, I, I've, I've got such an advanced musical vocabulary or anything like that. It's just, it's just I like music on in the background and everything that I like to listen to, I like having in the background. And I will say this about music while gaming. There is something terrible and some of the worst gaming ambiance I've ever had in my life is when you're sitting around and someone's taking their turn and no one is talking, and that crushing silence sits in. And it happens. It happens sometimes. And I hate it. And I find background music to be wonderful at taking the tension and unpleasantness out of that moment. Now, maybe this is just a, a tension that I'm feeling that nobody else is. But it just seems so desperately awkward. But, you know, if there's music in the background that everyone can at least agree on, and of course that's a tremendous problem in and of itself... Uh, I find that that goes away. And that's one of the reasons why I liked having music on in the background. But it's good to hear uh, that you have such a strong preference that I've been accidentally accommodating all this time. I actually had a playlist specifically for uh, for gaming gatherings that was, you know, several several hundred songs long so it wouldn't repeat too much. But, uh, okay, you, you, you hate the arts and uh, uh, don't want anything. As long as it's in the background, it's perfectly fine. So but what's the distinction you're drawing? So definitely not from a cell phone speaker, absolutely. What's the difference between the just background the, I and... I think it's just the, the level of the volume. Okay. Fair enough. And it's got to be the Conan soundtrack. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, well, that's another ish- interesting issue with respect to music. I find... I actually find it a little tiresome how some people insist they want, like, thematically appropriate playlists. Like, oh, I need I need appropriate mood music for my Cthulhu game. Or I need appropriate mood music for, for my whatever game. I don't really... I don't find that that adds substantially to the experience. But then again, I don't seem to approach games as thematically as some other people do. Uh, but we've talked about thematic integration in the past and how we seem to be out of step with a lot of people in that sense. So true. So to finish this off, it always falls into almost the exact same sentence I say every time. Respect people's time. People have very limited time to dedicate to this hobby. And when they have that time to do so, just try to make it the most fun that you possibly can. Focus on, you know, you can see their face, whether they're having a good time or a bad time. You can you understand why it's not. It's like, oh, you can see that that's distracting them or that's, you know, not working for them. And just try to accommodate them as long as it's not, you know, wrecking it for you. You know, you can't just be selfless and just, you know, say, well, I'm going to, you know, ruin this game for myself because this one person is, you know not enjoying it or, you know, ruin it for somebody else, but just try your best to make everyone have fun. I'm going to parse that as an encouragement to do what I've already resolved to do, which is play every game from now on in a large open room with a, with a table appropriately spaced, uh, sized for the room with lots and lots of light everywhere while I'm eating my Cheez-Its on a plate with a plastic fork with Tool playing loudly in the background. And if you have any objections to any of that, I will just be able to play that clip for you and you'll have to relent. There you go. I'm going to play games that everyone hates on my giant boat of a table while eating chicken wings with everyone I hate and dubstep music cranked to 10. So thank you very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach Walker via his email, just roll the dice. That's J-U-S-T-R-O-L-L-D-A-D-I-C-E at gmail.com. You can reach me, Mark Bigney, on Twitter at The Games You Like. For more public discussion, you can find the So Very Wrong About Games Facebook page. Or you can check out our Board Game Geek Guild, which is guild number 3236. And you can find us on Patreon. We read everything you send us, and we'll get back to you if we can. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon. Peace!
You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigman. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.